1997, Judy Smith accompanied her husband to Philadelphia for a business conference. While out sightseeing, Judy vanished. Months later, her body was found hundreds of miles away in clothes her husband didn't recognize. The mystery is not just who killed Judy Smith, but how did she get to the Blue Ridge Mountains? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. All right, welcome back to the show. This is my last scheduled episode before I take the rest of December off for the holiday, except I think I'm going to have a short episode for you next week anyway, even though it's a week off. It's a case the family really wants to get out there. It's not really a full-length episode of information, so I thought it would be really great to work it in to a day I wouldn't otherwise be putting out an episode. So I basically talked myself out of taking a break, as usual. So let's get into tonight's case because it's really something and it turned out to be a lot bigger than I thought when I started it. I'm on an unsolved cases kick lately. It's all I've been reading. And this one really stood out to me. Jill recommended this back in the Insight days. So if you're still listening, thank you for the recommendation. This story starts with 50-year-old Judy Smith who was a home health care nurse in the Boston area of Massachusetts, where she lived with her new husband, 52-year-old lawyer, Jeff Smith. The two had actually met over a decade earlier in the mid-1980s when Judy was caring for Jeff's father after a surgery he had. She only worked in the home for about a week, but she and Jeff really hit it off. They started off as friends, but Jeff said he was really touched by her compassionate ways, and they soon started dating. They were both divorced, and they were single parents to teenagers. Jeff had one, and Judy had two. They didn't seem to be in a huge rush to take their relationship to the next step. They were focused on their careers and on raising their children. They both had primary custody of their kids. But when the kids were grown and out of the house or away at college, they decided to move in together about eight years into their relationship. Judy moved into Jeff's house even though she really hated the house. Judy was not the type to be quiet about her opinions on pretty much anything, so Jeff knew how she felt about the house, and the truth was, He kind of hated the house too. He had only bought it for the school district. He had primary custody of his daughter and wanted her to go to the best school. So he bought whatever house he could afford in the best school district. But now his daughter's off at college and they didn't need to stay right in that neighborhood. So when Jeff and Judy got married in November of 1996, they already had plans to sell the house the following summer and find something they both loved more. Five months into their marriage, of course, they'd been together for a decade at this point, but they'd only been married five months. 
in April 1997, Jeff had a work conference in Philadelphia. This was an annual convention, and Judy had gone with him to the same conference in the past, but it was always in a different city. Judy was excited for this particular year for a couple reasons. One, she'd never been to Philadelphia before. She really wanted to see the city. They also had very close friends who lived in New Jersey. So Judy planned to sightsee while Jeff was at the conference, and when the conference wrapped up in a few days, they'd visit with their friends for the weekend. So on Wednesday, April 9th, 1997, Judy and Jeff went to the airport in Boston for their afternoon flight to Philadelphia. They'd land pretty much right in time for Jeff to make the opening session of the conference. When they went to board the flight, Judy realized she didn't have her driver's license on her. She hadn't driven to the airport, and according to Jeff, she forgot the rules had changed since she had last flown probably around two years before. At that point, you didn't need an ID to board the plane, but by 1997, you did. But also, according to Jeff, she did fly the year before to Florida, so there's a little bit of a conflicting story on why she forgot her license, but the point was, she didn't have it with her. Judy didn't have time to go back to the house, get her license, and then make it onto the flight, particularly since she had to take public transportation back to the house. Since Jeff had to be in Philly that afternoon, they decided that he would go ahead, get on the plane, and go. Judy changed her ticket to a 7.30 flight. So Jeff leaves, and Judy takes the round-trip bus ride back home, grabs her ID, and gets back in time for the new flight. Judy finally landed in Philadelphia around 9. She stopped and bought some flowers before getting to the hotel around 10 p.m. She went to the front desk to get a key to the room, but as she headed to the elevators, Jeff was coming out of the hotel restaurant. Judy gave Jeff the bouquet of flowers as an apology for the stress of having to change the flights. They headed up to their hotel room where they ate pizza and chatted about their plans for the next day. So, okay, this is a lot of detail, recounting every step Judy Smith took when she got to Philadelphia, and I know that, but surprisingly, it actually comes up later. The morning of Thursday, April 10th, Jeff said he went downstairs to the hotel lobby for breakfast while Judy slept in a little. Around 8 or 9 in the morning, he went back up to the room, and Judy was awake and about to step into the shower. He told Judy she should try the breakfast because it was really good, and she made a lighthearted joke about not going down as she was, meaning naked. Basically, Jeff said everything was normal. Jeff assumed Judy's plans for the day were to sightsee and be back to the hotel around 5 p.m., So he headed down to the conference, leaving her to get ready. Judy had mentioned to him the night before that she was going to take the Philadelphia flash bus to get around and not to put a tourist recommendation in the middle of an episode. I actually suggest you look into this. 
It's like five bucks for unlimited writing and loops around the downtown area to all the big sites. You can get on and off as much as you like. Pretty low price. So if you ever go to Philadelphia, look into the Flash bus. Anyway, Jeff went to the conference believing Judy was going to do the sightseeing thing through the bus. They had their plans to meet up that evening. As is the case with a lot of these conferences, there was a cocktail party reception that evening at 6 p.m. So Jeff thought their plans were to meet up in the hotel room, to get ready, and head down together. Then after the cocktail party, they'd go to dinner with friends around 7. But when Jeff went up to their hotel room at 5.30, Judy wasn't there. He got ready as he waited for her and then eventually thought maybe they had a miscommunication. Maybe Judy came back at 5, got ready, and thought the plan was to meet Jeff at the party and they had just missed each other in passing. So a little concerned but not worried, Jeff went down to the area where the cocktail party was going to be, and he got there a little early, didn't see Judy anywhere. So he went back and forth from the party to the hotel room a few times for the next half an hour, hoping he would bump into Judy and figure out their miscommunication. Around 6.15, 6.30, Jeff was worried enough that he approached the hotel concierge and had him call area hospitals to check to see if something had happened to Judy. She had said she would be back around 5. It was now almost an hour and a half later, and there was no sign of her, and she hadn't called, and that was completely out of character. Judy was not just punctual. She was early. If you showed up on time, she will have been waiting for you for 5-10 minutes already. None of the hospitals reported having Judy in their ERs or having been admitted. Jeff then called his daughter to have her go over to the house to see if there was a message on the answering machine there, possibly from Judy. There was nothing. He called the stepkids, and they hadn't heard from her either. So then Jeff went searching on his own. He took a cab all along the bus route that Judy told him she planned to take. He was hoping he would find her along that route. Around midnight, he gave up his own search and went to the police, where he was told he had to wait 24 hours to report an adult missing. He had last seen Judy around 9 a.m. that day, and they said they'd take a report in the morning if she didn't show up. With no other options, Jeff went back to the hotel to wait until the morning. He did make one important phone call. He called one of the organizers of the conference to let him know what was going on. The organizer, in turn, called the mayor of Philadelphia and a state representative, both who were guests at the conference, to let them know that Judy was missing, Jeff tried to report her missing, and the police told him he had to wait. Jeff thinks this is why the response at the police station the next morning was a 180 from the don't-worry-about-it attitude of the night before. When he filed that missing persons report on 
the morning of Friday, April 11th, everyone was ready to spring into action and a search began immediately. And Jeff believes it's because the mayor and the state representative called the police and told them to take it seriously. By Saturday, Judy's disappearance was in the local newspapers, running a little snippet with her picture, letting people know to keep an eye out for her. One of the first articles in the Philadelphia Daily News said that there was an employee with Greyhound Bus Service who saw her at the terminal on Thursday afternoon, and this was a pretty solid lead. There were a few reasons to explain her being at the terminal other than her hopping on a bus and taking off. She may have needed to use the restroom or she was asking for directions. The terminal was on the way to Chinatown, which was somewhere she wanted to go. The driver of the tourist bus that Judy took that day said he dropped her off very near the hotel that she and Jeff were staying at. That's, of course, assuming he remembered Judy specifically in the sea of tourists he sees all day, every day. It would have been around 3 p.m. that he dropped her off if it was her. There were a number of potential sightings of Judy around Philadelphia. In the first five or six days, police received 16 separate sightings and believed six of them were credible. There was one very promising lead of a woman matching Judy's description who was acting disoriented in Penn's Landing. But when police got there, they found a homeless woman who bore a striking resemblance to Judy. That discounted a few of the sightings that had been seen as possibly credible in the Penn's Landing area. They were most likely this other woman. Judy always went everywhere with a red backpack rather than a purse. A lot of the photos the family has released of her, she is wearing this backpack. And some witnesses told police that they saw Judy with her ever-trusty red backpack. But from what I can tell, none of them offered that information first. It was always a case of the investigators mentioning the backpack and the witness then saying that, yes, they saw it. The only sightings that were considered possibly credible by police in the early days of this investigation were all on Thursday, the day Judy was last seen by Jeff. None of the ones after that were necessarily taken in by police as valid. There was a Friday sighting, though, that... Jeff's private investigator believes was credible. A woman with a red backpack was shopping at Macy's in Deptford Mall, which is about 13 miles from downtown Philadelphia. It's in New Jersey, but it is really easy to get to. You just take one bus and you're there in about an hour. According to two witnesses, a salesperson and a customer who had been standing nearby This woman, who may have been Judy, was talking about how she liked to buy clothes for her daughter, but she didn't know why she bothered since her daughter never liked what she bought. Both the salesperson and the customer had the impression that this lady was a little off. And when she left, she approached a young woman, apparently confusing her for her daughter. And again, she had a red backpack. 
pulling security footage didn't help because whatever happened happened off camera. The family does not discount the sighting. If Judy was disoriented for any reason, she could have gotten on that bus and just got off when it stopped at the mall. It wouldn't have been a complicated journey for someone even if they weren't entirely lucid. And the shopping for her daughter part of the conversation rings true. Judy did like to buy clothes for her daughter that her daughter didn't always like. And Judy was the type who would comment about that, even while buying the clothes. But based on the barely worn clothes in my own daughter's closet, I can say this is a near-universal mother-daughter experience. I've mostly learned my lesson on this. I don't buy her stuff without her seeing it first. But I do know people do show love with gifts, and they don't stop buying them even when they know their daughter doesn't like their style. Whether this was Judy or not doesn't matter in the sense that it doesn't lead anywhere. At the time, it was a good lead for them to pursue, but spoiler, doesn't go anywhere. The Philadelphia police were largely following one track early on. Judy left on her own. Maybe she needed some space and took it? One detective said it wasn't unheard of for middle-aged women to go away to see if anyone missed them. I've literally never heard of that happening, but okay. The more police spoke to Judy's friends and family, they got a bit of a mixed message on the likelihood that Judy would take off. A couple of friends said Judy wasn't all that into her marriage. She wasn't into the idea of getting married at all. It was more what Jeff wanted, and maybe even more what his aging mother wanted. His mother paid for the wedding, even though they were both working professionals in their 50s with grown children and had both been married before. She wanted to put on this beautiful wedding. Jeff's mother even planned it. She planned the entire wedding. Leading up to it, Judy's friends report she was pretty ambivalent. Things almost fell apart when Jeff presented Judy with a prenup. She was not in favor of the idea of it. It didn't actually matter what it said. She didn't like the idea of starting a marriage with a prenuptial agreement in the event the marriage ended. She did end up signing it, but she didn't even read it first. Like I said, it didn't matter what it said because she was signing it against her better judgment anyway. After the wedding, in those five short months, Jeff had stopped working as much because he was moving out of his private practice in the hopes of going into teaching. So he was home more often than he had been before and in Judy's space more. And you would also think that after a decade of dating and two years of living together, the marriage wouldn't change their dynamic very much. But Judy's friends said it did. Before they managed their own finances, now Jeff wanted Judy to handle all the finances, including his. He started expecting her to go out more than she wanted to 
go out, be a little bit more social than she wanted. So five months in, she was complaining to her friends, essentially that Jeff was too needy. I'm sure the police could see a reason why Judy would, spur of the moment, decide to hop on a bus or a train and take a breather. But on the other hand, she had strong and healthy relationships with those around her. I mean, she had some family she was estranged from, like her brothers, but her friends, even the ones who could see her leaving Jeff, could never see her taking off without telling her kids what was going on. That just would not have happened. We also have Judy's daughter saying that she didn't believe her mother would have left Jeff to worry like that, and Jeff denied that there were serious issues in their marriage. I think a lot of this comes down to Judy's personality. She was independent. She was loud. She was assertive. When she found herself a single mom to two little kids, she got herself into nursing school. She raised them while going to school. She was living well below the poverty line, just trying to get her and her kids out of that hole. And that's exactly what she did on her own. If she wanted to travel somewhere or wanted space, Judy was the type to say, I need space. See you in a few days. And everyone would have said, okay, call me when you get back. Sneaking away was not something she would have wanted to do or needed to do. The other thing is that she had carefully planned this trip to Philadelphia. One of the friends they were meeting up with for the weekend had a disability that meant he couldn't be outside for extended periods. So Judy made sure she filled her Thursday with outdoor sightseeing adventures so that when the weekend rolled around, they could focus on just doing indoor things with their friends. Why go to all the trouble to make all these little tiny plans if you were just going to walk off and never return? So investigators had to entertain the possibility that Judy left on her own initially, but was not staying away voluntarily. Maybe she was going to take a break and call Jeff or call her kids later that night to explain things but something stopped her from being able to do that. But wherever she went, she wouldn't have gotten very far or stayed away very long with what it appears she left with. She left her passport behind at the house, so she didn't leave the country. Based on the cash Jeff knew they brought with them and what was left behind in the hotel room, he estimated she had about $200 on her. She left behind 500. If she wanted to go away and stay away, she could have just taken the whole 700. Why leave most of it behind? Police put alerts on her American Express card so they would be notified the minute it was used and they got nothing. She had a calling card on her. That wasn't touched. There was nothing weird going on with bank accounts. She had her nursing license with her in her wallet, which could have gotten her a job, but it would have required verification. Jeff had a check run on that, and no one ever called Massachusetts to check her credentials. Whatever cash Judy left with 
was all she could have used without the police knowing. If it really was just $200, even 20-plus years ago, that's not going to get you far if you figure out that you're going to need transportation, food, and shelter. Her kids and her friends and her extended family, everybody says Judy could have run off and started over somewhere else in the sense that she had the talent and the courage and the resilience to do it. But she never would have because she wouldn't have left her kids to worry. She was such a compassionate person that even though they were adults, she would never have left them behind like that, period. But her kids said that they would sometimes tell themselves that must have been what happened because they'd rather believe she left them than to believe she came to some type of harm. Deep down, they had to have known they were lying to themselves. Their mother would have contacted them if she could have. But how do you give up all hope? The only explanation that let them believe she was alive and that she wasn't contacting them was that maybe she had some sort of mental break. Jeff was really concerned about this possibility and worried that Judy ended up in jail or in a psychiatric hospital somewhere. For some reason, Judy was not entered into the National Crime Information Center, known as NCIC, until a month after her disappearance. Jeff thinks it's because police weren't really looking for her that hard, but it could have been a miscommunication or just someone didn't follow up with it and they should have. The issue with this, though, is let's say, like Jeff thinks, Judy had some type of very spontaneous psychotic break. She ended up disoriented and confused and was admitted into a hospital somewhere. Admissions would do a check on her description in NCIC to see if she was a missing person. When no result came back, they would treat her not knowing family was looking for her. And if they didn't decide to check again, over a month later, they would never see her entry. Jeff's big fear here was that Judy could have been located earlier, but wasn't because of this oversight. For all he knew, Judy could have been on a 72-hour hold and then released before she was entered into NCIC. And while Jeff is worried about that, the police start working a second angle. And that's a theory that Judy never made it to Philadelphia to begin with. Jeff had done away with her in Boston, and all the talk about her forgetting her license, not getting on the plane, all of that was a ruse on his part. This is where all those little details of what Judy did come into play. Even though a number of people at the conference knew Judy on site because of her long relationship with Jeff, the police said no one they talked with actually saw her at the hotel, even though she was supposedly in the lobby when Jeff and others came out of a restaurant. So while this theory seemed to have popped out of nowhere at some point when they just couldn't find her in Philadelphia, it actually started formulating very, very early on just the seeds of this theory. 
It started when police searched the hotel room that Jeff and Judy were staying in. They were looking for clues of where she could have gone, and a female officer said she was surprised by a few things. For instance, there was a pack of pink hair curlers, but no hairbrush. Judy was going out to cocktail parties and dinners while in Philly, but there was no makeup. There was no jewelry. She hadn't packed very much clothing for the four or five days they were going to be there. Judy's daughter looked over these same items and said it looked about right to her for how her mother traveled. She didn't pack a lot. She didn't do the full hair and makeup routine all the time. Her hairbrush, any makeup, any lip gloss, mascara, all of that would have been tossed in her red backpack that she carried everywhere. And as far as anyone could tell, she took that with her. There was something that stood out that's a little harder to explain away, and those were her undergarments. None of the underwear in the room had been worn. So basically, Judy would have had to fly to Philadelphia, sleep, take a shower, and put back on her underwear from the day before. Some people may do that, but there were enough clean pairs in the drawer that it didn't look like she anticipated having to rewear anything. As for the claim that Jeff was the only one who saw Judy in Philadelphia, he said that's ridiculous. When he met her in the lobby of the hotel, she had gone to the clerk and gotten a key for the room herself. He thought she would have also had to have signed the register to get the key. And the clerk did say she saw someone who looked like Judy. She couldn't remember her for certain because Judy didn't really stand out. But she does remember seeing Jeff. He was a very big guy, so he stuck out quite a bit. The clerk even saw the flowers. She interpreted it as Jeff giving Judy the flowers, but that was probably just an assumption on her part. She saw two people with flowers and just assumed the man gave it to the woman. Now, Judy did not sign in. She would have shown her ID to get the key card, though. This no one saw her in Philadelphia line isn't quite right, even if you dismiss every sighting of Judy on Thursday. The clerk did see her on Wednesday. Now, she might not be able to say 100% that it was for sure Judy, but she described the scene with the flowers, which is a very specific detail that Jeff had already told the police about that I think validates that she did see Judy. Another thing the police used to bolster their opinion that Judy never made it to Philadelphia was about hotel keys. And they told this to the Philadelphia Inquirer that no hotel keys were missing. So why would Judy have left the hotel without a key to get back into her room? But the Inquirer checked into this. They called the hotel and they were told there's no way to know if keys were missing or not. This was 1997, and they had switched over to swipe keys. These little pieces of plastic cost pennies to produce. No one is spending their time counting them. The manager of the hotel said he has no idea who at the hotel would have told the Philadelphia police otherwise. 
Who would have told them that no hotel keys were missing? Okay, so Judy had flown to Philly. So let's check with the airlines. And the police did confirm Judy's ticket for that 7.30 flight was used. The flight attendants don't remember that specific woman sitting in that specific seat on that flight, but the ticket was used, and it was used using Judy's ID, presumably. So if this is some kind of ruse, now we have another person here in this grand conspiracy. Who would Jeff have gotten to play that role? She would have had to use a flight using a fake ID, flown to Philadelphia, got the key card using Judy's ID, exchanged the flowers. I mean, come on, unless investigators have a name for who that woman was. This entire theory falls flat. It is based on Judy being a light packer who maybe rewore her underwear. That is all this theory is really based on. And Judy's children told the Inquirer, no way. There is no way their stepfather was lying about any of this. If he said Judy was in Philadelphia, then she was. He's a gentle person. He's an honest person. And he was devastated with each passing day they couldn't find Judy. He was willing to talk to any media outlet who wanted to interview him just to keep the case out there. He was pushing as hard as anyone to find his wife. He wanted the FBI to be called in. The Philadelphia police said they couldn't because there wasn't a reason to. There wasn't evidence of a crime. Jeff was contacting influential people like politicians to try to push them to pressure the police. He hired private investigators. And yes, that's plural. He hired two private investigators at his own expense. Jeff consulted with three neurologists to find out if it was possible for his wife to have suddenly become disoriented to the point she would wander off, forget who she was, and never return. Because Judy had a physical just a couple weeks before the trip, they had up-to-date medical info on her to base their assessment, and all three doctors said it was highly unlikely that that would have happened. If Jeff was guilty, it seems odd he would pour so much time, money, and effort into investigating this case. He could have just left the investigation to the police. But in spite of this, the Philadelphia PD still suspected him and wanted him to take a polygraph. Jeff said he would, but only if, one, the FBI administered it, and two, if he passed it, the city police would call in the FBI to help. Jeff wasn't a criminal attorney, but he knew the accuracy of lie detector tests was in the skill of the person interpreting the results, and he only trusted the FBI to do this. He also felt this would give him leverage to get what he wanted, which was an FBI investigation. He didn't think the Philadelphia PD were doing a good job. So here's Jeff's solution to get the FBI in. But the Philadelphia PD did not intend to invite the FBI in. And honestly, there was really no basis to do so. The FBI, even invited in, can't just take every single case. There has to be 
a reason, a jurisdiction for them to step in. So the Philly PD offered a compromise. They said they don't have to be the ones to administer the polygraph. They would make arrangements for the Massachusetts State Police, which was Jeff's home state, to administer it. And Jeff said no. It was the FBI test or nothing. And if he passed, the FBI had to come in. Now, the police were painting this as a continued refusal to take the test, which they deemed suspicious. They said Jeff knew the FBI had no jurisdiction to step in. So he was putting up this barrier, this condition, to make it seem like he would cooperate. But the condition was something he knew they were not actually able to meet. But Jeff did not see it this way at all. He kept seeing it as the Philadelphia PD were refusing to bring the FBI in. And they were refusing his one condition because they didn't want the FBI to take over the case. This really caused the case to stall out. And it was at a standstill by midsummer. There were no new tips or leads coming in, but Jeff had an idea. Because of his worry that Judy may have been in a hospital before she was entered into NCIC, he started mailing thousands of missing person flyers around the country. He was hoping it would lead to a tip, so he was sending them to other police departments and he was sending them to hospitals. And it was one of these flyers that brought the resolution in this case, but absolutely not what Jeff anticipated and not what they wanted. On September 9th, 1997, an emergency room doctor named Parker Davis saw an article about a body found in the Pisgah National Forest near Asheville, North Carolina, which is the western part of the state, closer to Tennessee than the coast. Davis had recently gotten one of Jeff's flyers, and he made the connection between the body and Judy's disappearance. He called in the tip. So what happened was on September 7th, just two days before, a father and son were out hunting around 4 p.m. Deer season hadn't opened yet, so technically they were poaching. Anyway, they were near one of the picnic areas in the forest only accessible on foot, when they found human bones scattered around. They called the sheriff's department. The medical examiner determined that the body was a white female between the ages of 40 and 55, and he believed the remains had been there for at least a year, possibly up to two years. And this timeline did not fit Judy at all, since she had only been missing five months but a lot can affect decomposition, particularly in a situation like this where the body is left exposed in the summer and there is a lot of animal activity. There were two things that gave the medical examiner high hopes that they'd be able to identify this Jane Doe. One was that the woman had severe osteoarthritis in her right knee, something she very likely would have sought some type of treatment for. And the second thing is she had a significant amount of dental work that would make it easy to identify her if they had a comparison. The autopsy did not provide 
answers as to cause of death. It could not be determined 100%. There are some more recent articles out there that will say that there were nicks or marks on her bones indicating a possible stabbing. But I think it's important to note that that was not ever mentioned in any of the original reporting about the autopsy findings. I cannot find when, where, or why that entered the narrative. There were tears on her clothes, particularly on her bra. And that is what led to the assumption that she may have been stabbed. But it was not definitive enough to put it down as a cause of death. However, the sheriff's department still marked this as a homicide for one main reason. The body had been wrapped in a blanket and buried in a shallow grave. The reason the bones were found was due to scattering by animals. No matter how Judy died, she did not bury herself. So let's get back to this ER doctor. He read about the body, and he contacted the Philadelphia PD to tell them about it. They did a dental comparison, and due to the extent of that dental work, they were able to make a 100% match to the Jane Doe. Judy was found, but this was not the news her family wanted to hear, and they were shocked at where she was found. This is over 600 miles from Philadelphia. If she had gotten in a car and drove there, it would have been 10 hours. And more puzzling, Judy was found wearing hiking clothes, long underwear, jeans, and even hiking boots. This was not what she was believed to have been wearing when she was sightseeing around Philadelphia. Jeff believed that she would have been wearing jeans, sneakers, and a three-quarter length dark coat. Because she was getting ready when he left the hotel room, He didn't know exactly what she was wearing, though. But it's my understanding that her family was not familiar with her owning these clothes and these hiking boots, though, I mean, some people who live together don't always know what the other person owns. If you keep separate finances, separate closets, you might not know. Judy's wedding ring, which had a diamond in it, was found. And a shirt found near her body had $87 in cash in the pocket. And though Judy's red backpack was nowhere to be found, a blue and black vinyl backpack was in the area. It had some winter clothing in it, as well as an expensive pair of sunglasses that were not believed to be Judy's. Her friends and family said she would never have spent $100 plus on a pair of sunglasses, and the knapsack also had $80 in cash. With her ring and this money being left behind, it was determined not to be a robbery gone wrong. Otherwise, someone would have taken that stuff. It was also reported that police believe the blue backpack was not Judy's, that it belonged to the killer. And I don't know if they're basing that just on the sunglasses that they don't believe belonged to her, or if the winter clothes that were in the bag were men's clothes. That would give you an idea it wasn't Judy's bag. But let's talk about this amount of money, because she was found with $167, which is not that much less than what Jeff estimated she left with. 
So let's say she left with the full 200. She spent only 33 of it and ended up more than 600 miles away from where she went missing. We have that sighting at the Greyhound bus station in Philadelphia. So let's say Judy hopped on a bus to Asheville, North Carolina. It's hard to figure out what a bus ticket would have cost in 1997. Today, it would have been about $100. So maybe it really did only cost 30 bucks back then. Judy would still have to get to the forest to go hiking. The bus doesn't drop you off at a trailhead. So bus station to forest, how'd she get there? The other question is why, with her arthritic knee, would she have gone on that particular trail? It was a fairly rigorous hike. The investigating sheriff in North Carolina aggravated his existing back issues while working the case because of this terrain. If someone with back issues was struggling, you'd think someone with severe arthritis in her knee would have also found it difficult. And I have some experience in this area as someone who has joint issues and also likes to hike. If I'm having a flare-up, I can't do a rigorous or extended hike. And my condition is considered mild on the spectrum of arthritis. Judy had more joint damage that was more limiting, yet she was on this difficult hike. Basically, what I'm saying is finding Judy actually made this case more mysterious than her vanishing into thin air. It has brought in way, way more questions and has answered very few of them. There were three witnesses in the Asheville, North Carolina area who reported seeing Judy and police felt these were solid sightings. One was a woman who ran a store, but two others caught my attention more because they both saw a woman matching Judy's description in the area. Both witnesses, separate from each other, said she was driving a gray sedan. That kind of perked my ears up when we have two independent witnesses giving the same information. In one case, the woman had pulled into a campground and asked the owner if she could stay there sleeping in her car. The owner said she couldn't. It was tent or RV only. And the woman, who may have been Judy, left. She said the car was filled with boxes and bags. So if this was Judy, here's another question. Where did the boxes and bags come from? For that matter, where did the car come from? She left with virtually nothing. The only way this makes sense is if Judy had money on her that Jeff didn't know about, which is entirely possible. But to get a car, which you would assume she would have rented, she would have also had to have had a credit card that he didn't know about and the police couldn't find any information on. Now, the second person who saw this woman in the gray sedan was the owner of a deli in the same area. She said the woman bought about $30 worth of food and a toy truck. The $30 stood out to me because it was in prepared sandwiches, not goods that would keep for very long. And that's a lot of sandwiches for one person to eat. With this purchase of a toy along with it, it sounds more like a mom grabbing food for her family and a toy for her little kid on her way out the door. This doesn't sound like a woman who's about to go on a hike. 
One issue with all of these Asheville sightings is that they're hard to verify six months down the road. All of these people saw this maybe Judy Smith in mid-April, and the police didn't talk to them until October at the earliest. So how could they be sure it was her or remember all the details? Well, one of the clerks had some pretty specific information that gives her story some more credibility. According to her, the woman told her she was from Boston, said her husband was a lawyer who was at a conference in Philadelphia, and that she had decided to travel down to the Blue Ridge Mountains while he was at the conference. The clerk said that the woman she was speaking to did not seem disoriented. She seemed completely lucid and totally fine. About these details, though, all that information I just said was in the press at the time the witness statement was made. It's possible the witness unintentionally absorbed some of these details into her story. She remembered seeing someone matching Judy's description, and you know, now that she thinks about it, the woman did say something about a conference in Philly. I think she did say something about Boston. It happens, and witnesses don't necessarily realize it's happening. But with these leads, and assuming the woman in the gray sedan was looking for a place to stay, investigators tried other campgrounds and lodging in the area, but they had no luck at finding anyone who had Judy try to check in or had checked Judy in anywhere. Police checked under her maiden name, both of her previous husband's last names, her current name, and nothing came back. Another investigative track was to figure out why Judy would have gone to North Carolina to begin with. Why that area? Judy had two very, very vague ties to the broader area. One time she went to visit Jeff when he was at a residential weight loss program in the Raleigh-Durham area, but that's a good four hours east from where she was found. Her other connection was that she drove one of her home health care patients down to that area to visit family. But Judy's family remembered where differently. One thought it was Virginia, another thought it was North Carolina, and someone else thought it was Tennessee. Obviously, Judy wasn't so enamored with the area that she yacked on and on about wanting to go back since no one could even remember which state she went to. This was as close of a connection to the area that they could find. So basically, they have no idea why she would have gone down there. And the police do still believe that she went down there voluntarily. And the investigators, at least in North Carolina, seem to believe she was in her right mind. Maybe she did need a break from Jeff and impulsively got on a bus to go down to Asheville. Maybe when she forgot her license to get on the plane, she was hoping to just turn around and go home and not have to see Jeff for however long he was gone and get a break that way. But when Jeff insisted she get another ticket, she gave in. I don't know. They do think, though, that maybe she needed a break and decided to get out of town. No idea why Asheville, but that's where she ended up. Well, there somehow... She rented a gray sedan and took it to the mountains to hike. In spite of her arthritic knee, she did love the outdoors. She loved hiking. 
she was unfamiliar with the area, as I've pointed out, so she may not have realized how difficult the trail she picked was going to be. If that's all true, there have got to be some receipts somewhere. Receipts of a bus ticket, a rental car, there needs to be some kind of paper trail of how she got there if she went on her own. There's another possibility, and that's that she met up with someone. No one believes there was another man. None of her friends say that would have been a possibility. But maybe she did meet somebody while she was in Philadelphia and something sounded like a good adventure. If she had rented the car, not only would we have a receipt for it, but the agency would note that the car was never returned and put out a stolen vehicle alert on it. Or it would have been towed from the park after it was abandoned and none of that happened. So what if someone else was renting the car, someone else was paying for the bus tickets, and so on? Jeff, though, he disagreed with all of this. He thinks that if Judy went on her own, she was out of her mind, but he leans towards her being abducted and forced to go down there, which would mean the sightings of the lady in the gray sedan were just not Judy because that woman was alone and she was not distressed. There's always the possibility that Jeff is just not going to believe anything that suggests that his wife left him voluntarily. That's, that's a possibility because the truth is, it really seems like Judy did leave voluntarily. She was found dressed in the clothes you wear when you hike in the mountains in April. I can't see an abductor forcing her to dress in hiking clothes or somehow dressing her after death and then burying her to make it look like she got murdered while hiking. I mean, none of that really makes a lot of sense. The one thing finding Judy's body did do is eliminate Jeff as a suspect for most people. The Philadelphia police may not be willing to publicly concede this, but he would have had no time to have killed his wife and dumped her body so far away, then gotten on a plane for Philadelphia with his stand-in Judy getting on a plane later. None of that makes any sense. One of the main points, though, is that Jeff was morbidly obese. He had difficulty walking moderate distances. He would not have been able to go up the trail with her to attack her at the picnic area. And he certainly couldn't have carried her up there. And having someone else drive Judy down there to dump her body means now we have three people in on this. Jeff, the woman, and now whoever's dumping the body. That's a pretty big conspiracy. The sheriff who was investigating this case back when Judy's body was found has said that he thinks Judy was there hiking and she was either with someone she thought was friendly or she was alone at the picnic site and attacked there. His reasoning is that the terrain would have been difficult for anyone to have carried a full-grown woman's body up there to bury her. There were a lot more easier spots to dump a body along the way. There were drag marks, but they were only near the grave. Basically, her killer dug it and then dragged her the short distance to it. It had been some time between when she was likely killed and when she was found, but this isn't a heavily traveled area, so you would have expected to still see some drag marks. So basically, official story of the case is that Judy was killed where she was found at the picnic site, and that she had gone there voluntarily. 
but that does not help answer who killed her. There are no clear suspects in this case. And before you even email me, Israel Keys was in the Pacific Northwest at this point. He had not even enlisted in the Army until the following year. Keys is not a suspect. But there is a serial killer who does come up, Gary Michael Hilton. From December 2005 until January 2008, he killed at least six hikers in Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina. And yes, this is in the same national forest Judy was killed in. At the point Hilton was caught, he was in his 50s. The average age of a male serial killer's first kill is 27 to 28 years of age. So he very well could have been killing for a while and just hadn't been caught and hasn't been connected to those deaths. He was 49 or 50 when Judy was killed and his victimology crossed ages and gender lines. He killed people in their 20s and he killed people in their 80s. His first serious attempt to kill someone actually happened when he was 13 when he shot his stepfather. His stepfather survived and refused to participate in prosecuting Hilton. This was in the 1950s, so they kind of just let the family deal with it, and they sent him to a psychiatric facility. In his early 20s, he reported that he was hearing voices. He was enlisted in the service and was honorably discharged due to claiming these hallucinations. It's, of course, possible that he faked this, We are talking the height of the Vietnam War. He had a reason to not want to be in the military. And there's nothing else in his life after this that indicates a serious mental illness like that. He held down jobs for several years, including a marketing job that required a high level of organized thought. And there's no indication he was being treated for schizophrenia or anything else. In the cases Hilton has been convicted for, Robbery was involved. He used his victim's ATM cards to access cash, and that did not happen here with Judy. Nobody touched her bank accounts. And not only that, cash was left behind. So I don't think Hilton is a really great suspect in this regard. A lot of people point to a case that happened very near where Judy was found, but you'll see it reported as a year before, two years before, a couple months before, but I managed to find the case in the archives and it occurred in October 1994, so it's two and a half years before Judy went missing. In that case, 22-year-old Karen Stiles was found dead, duct taped to a tree. She had been shot to death. Her killer, though, was caught very soon after because he bought the gun and the duct tape just days before Karen went missing. They had all the receipts they needed. And Richard Allen Jackson was convicted and already in prison for the murder when Judy was killed. There is no way he could have been involved, and it was just a sad coincidence that both women were killed and left so close to each other. There have been no other named persons of interest in this case, Jeff Smith died in January 2005, never learning what happened to Judy. He remained close to Judy's kids and considered her daughter's child his grandchild. I like to think that they found some comfort in their relationship with each other, and the family shared love of Judy 
kept them together, even though they never found answers or justice. Years ago, there was a reward in the case, but I'm not sure it's still active. If you have any information on the murder of Judy Smith, please call the Buncombe County Crime Stoppers at 828-255-5050. As always, the number will be in the show notes. 